Good morning. Um, if you've never heard me speak, uh, my name is Paul, and I will say that this is not what my voice normally sounds like. It's not normally this deep, authoritative, rich voice. Um, I came down with something uh, on, I think, Thursday or Friday and been fighting it off ever since. But uh, anyway, uh, I hope that it's not too distracting just how deep and rich it is. It, it, it will hopefully not be distracting for me either. Um, good morning. I'm glad that it's Family Worship Sunday. I love, I love the sounds of kids. Mine is one of them. Um, and, uh, and so please know that that noise we expect and we enjoy this morning. As we look at Galatians 2, uh, 11 through 21, I know that I'm, I'm going to preach a sermon that doesn't hit most of what Paul says in this passage. Um, there's a very, very oft-quoted verse in this passage that I really want to zoom in on and speak about really one thing that Paul addresses. And so um, it's, I kind of hesitate as I begin knowing that m- usually I'll, I'll do a little bit more in-depth line-by-line reading, but, but today I want to zoom in on just one thing, and I believe that it's what God has for us this morning. We're going to talk about life. Eugene Peterson, uh, a Christian pastor and author, said this about life. He said, the word life in the Bible and in all deeply imagined literature means far more than biological existence. And we know this, that there's more to life than simply breathing, eating, drinking, sleeping. Anne Rand, an atheist philosopher and author, was right, I think, when she said it this way. When she was trying to explain our quest for life, she said, it's not death that we wish to avoid, but life that we wish to live. In the movie Shawshank Redemption, Morgan Freeman's character is mentoring this young uh, prisoner who's just come into prison, and he's basically uh, encouraging him to just accept things and move on. And the younger prisoner says, I know, I know. It's either get busy living or get busy dying. It's a variation of a phrase that you might have heard a bunch of times. You're either living or you're dying. And what that means is that if you're not living life to the fullest, you might as well be dying. Life is not simply about being physically alive. We know this, uh, that life in its true sense involves meaning, purpose, fulfillment, joy, satisfaction. The question is, though, how do we get those things? How do we get life to the fullest? And in our text, Paul The Apostle Paul gives one of the most beautiful and rich definitions of life that's ever been penned, in my opinion. Verse 20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right at the heart of this passage, Paul is driving at the question, what is life and how do you get it? And the reason that Paul's message is so important to us, I think, Uh, is that the question of what life is and how to get it is a question that every human being is hardwired to seek to answer. And each one of us is desperately trying to answer. You you and I have asked that question many times, and we've had to answer that question many times. In this text, we're going to see that Paul shows us that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can truly answer this question. In order to get there, I want to go through three points. First, the world says that life can be achieved. Point two why this doesn't work, and point three, how we get it. So point one, the world says that life is something to be achieved. Uh, If uh, Many of you know this about me, that I did not grow up Christian. I didn't grow up in the church. Um, My first time in the church, other than a wedding or a funeral, was when my brother's soccer coach, uh, I don't know, I I still don't remember the details of how it turned out, but in high school, my little brother's soccer coach invited me to come to church with him, and he brought me to church with him. 
Um, I didn't grow up in the church, but I did have a great mom who told me, taught me a lot of good lessons. Uh, And the thing that she told me the most, probably most repeatedly, time and again, was this. She said, make every moment count. That's what my mom, I, I, I remember my mom saying that over and over again, make every moment count. If I was sad, if I was frustrated, if I was wasting time, my mom would look at me and say, Paul, are you making every moment count? In many ways, that mentality has become ingrained in my personality. It's how I see the world. Um, and and I, I kind of enjoy it. It means that life is very fun for me. I'm an optimist. Uh, I, I'm an idealist. There is very little that slows me down. And as I look back, in a real sense, I'm thankful for this lesson that my mom taught me because there's truth in what she's saying, uh, in what she was saying, right? Each moment that we come across is an opportunity to do one thing or another with. Even the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 tells Christians to make the most of the time that you've been given. But along with that idea that I was to make every moment count came a considerable amount of pressure. Right? If I let moments pass and didn't make them count, then that was on me. And each and every moment, who was it up to to make sure that I was really living life? It was up to me. And the thing is, in the eyes of our culture, this is normal, and it's actually a good thing to know. We live in a culture that tells you that if you want life to the fullest, all you need to do is go out and grab it, right? If it's to be, it's up to me. Life is mine for the taking. Nike's slogan, just do it. And this is nothing new. There's an old Latin phrase that you might have heard many times, carpe diem, seize the day. Probably the most accurate modern translation of that is grab life by the horns, which is consequently the slogan for dodge. And while the world is clear that you can do it, right, that really living is something that you can go out, the world is clear that you you can go out and get life for yourself, there's no one way that the world gives of doing it, is there? Right, the self-help genre of books, which is actually the most lucrative uh, uh, book genre in in the U.S. today, the self-help genre of books, podcasts, blogs, TV programs is incredibly diverse. If there are gurus giving you uh, true meaning in your life through mindfulness, through exercise, through the outdoors, through social engagement, through spiritual awakening, healthy eating, any number of combinations of these things and other things. All right, the list goes on. Here's seven steps to a better you. Right, if you just buy this book or read this blog, then I'll give you three things that you can change today that'll change the rest of your life. And while there's a diversity of different approaches to achieving life to the fullest, I think that if you look closely at our culture, as many people have, Uh, which is tending away from God and away from religious faith, most of these suggestions for how you can get life fall into two camps. Either the answer to life is to be found in reason, uh, in control and knowledge, or is to be found in emotion, creativity, and experience. And these two camps are very much in conflict today. The West, as we know it, is, is in the middle of something of a culture clash. There's an author, an Australian pastor named Mark Sayers, uh, who put out a book a couple of years ago called Facing Leviathan, and he looked at today's culture, uh, and, and he looks at the clash and traces it back to the 1800s. Right? Mark Sayers is, is talking about the, the, the clash of cultures, and he looks and he points to, to say, we are living in the midst of a clash between really the mechanical values of the Enlightenment, human reason and science, and the organic views of romanticism, human emotion and experience. And that that cultural war that came up in the 1800s and, uh, is, is what we're living in the middle of today. The hero of the Enlightenment uh, is the enlightened, self-made man who, in the words of Mark Sayers, is powerful, commanding, and conquering, creating with determination, organization, and systems as powerful as the hero himself. Picture Braveheart, Mel Gibson's Braveheart. Picture Captain Kirk from Star Trek or Abraham Lincoln. The way to fullness of life is understanding 
success, and control. The hero of romanticism, uh, that was the enlightenment. The hero of romanticism is the creative genius who, again, in the words of Mark Sayers, influences not through conquering, but through innovation, through art, through dangerously brilliant ideas. Think Steve Jobs, Bear Grylls, uh, that, that literature teacher who replaces desks in their classroom with couches. The best way to fullness of life is exploration, beauty, and creative experience. The reason I bring these things up to you uh, is because I think Mark Sayers is right, that this very, what, very much describes the world in which we live. The world around us is promising us life to the fullest, and today it's in one of those two primary ways. While they're fundamentally different, though, they have in common this one thing. They both teach us that it's up to you. Right? If you are living your life and you're wondering why you're not experiencing life to the fullest, here's what your problem is. Either your problem is lack of effort uh, or understanding or power, or your problem is lack of exploration and enjoyment. Right? Either you're not working the right way or hard enough, or you're not having enough fun. So get yourself together, grab life by the horns, and just do it. And the thing is, we want this. Right? We, want, we want things to be up to us. Uh, we, we want to think that if, if I just do the right thing, if I have the right experience, then I'll arrive at fulfillment. Then I'll be really living. And the world is looking back at us saying, you're right, it's there. Go get it. And while this sounds exciting and liberating, here's the problem. It doesn't work. I think deep down we know this. I think we know, we know that it doesn't work. Uh, it's, it's amazing that here in the United States, uh, in, in a moment in time when we have more self-help resources uh, than we've ever had before, more access to education, more technology, more money, more medicine, better dreams and ideals than we've ever had before in this moment in time, we also happen to be the, more, the most anxious, depressed, and suicidal than we've ever been. Right? Striving to achieve life to its fullest cannot come from our own effort alone, and the gospel tells us why. You see, this is nothing new. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes that says there's nothing new under the sun, and that's absolutely true when we talk about man's quest for life. The Bible tells us about, uh, it tells us the story of humanity, uh, the history of humanity, where we came from. God created all things good, and he created humanity as the crown of his creation uh, to be in relationship with them. Right? So fundamental to, the human, uh, fundamental to humanity, fundamental to why we were created, was one thing, God. God was meant to be at the center of our universe with all of our lives pointing to him, everything in our life finding its fulfillment in him. Right? And in the Garden of Eden, life was found in God himself with him and in him forever. It was beautiful and it was good until Satan came in with the first temptation. And you remember what it was. In the first few verses of Genesis three, Satan approaches the woman, Eve, saying this, I know that God told you that if you eat that tree, then you shall surely die. But listen, you will not surely die. Instead, your eyes will be opened. Satan essentially told Eve, don't listen to God, do this and then you'll find life. And sure enough, she looked for herself and said, yes, I don't need God. I see that the tree is good. I see that that fruit is to be desired. And so she ate it and she gave some to her husband and he ate it. And as a result of that, the world has never been the same. You see, in trusting themselves rather than God, sin entered the world. And ever since then, we've been living lives saying to ourselves and to each other, I don't need God. If I want life and life to the fullest, I can get it for myself. And as we read through the course of human history, right, we see that humankind has been doomed to a life of striving for life, but failed. 
There has been a God-sized hole in every human heart but that, that no human is able to fill, but that every human tries to fill without God. A few chapters after the fall, we come to the story of, uh, called the story of the Tower of Babel, which is when all mankind has an idea. Mankind comes together and says to each other, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. They said this, they said, you know what? We know that we need to get back to God, so let's build ourselves a way up. But God already had a plan for how to restore a relationship with humanity and the man-centered, human-centered effort wasn't it. So he confused their language, he dispersed the people across the face of the earth. After some time, God chose a particular people to call his own, the nation of Israel, and he gave them the law. The law was a glorious gift, right? God, in his law, gave people a way of life that would be pleasing to him, that had him at the center with everything as it should be. Should be. And with the law, God pointed his people forward to a day when salvation from sin and death would be accomplished and his relationship with them would finally be healed. But after some time, it became evident that even with the law, uh, describing the life that they needed to live, even with the law, God's people couldn't do it because of their rebellious hearts. They turned to their own efforts, their own desires, and they forsook God. And as we read through the Old Testament, it's like watching a game of tennis, back and forth, and back and forth, there were seasons in which God's people uh, experienced great success, great devotion to the Lord. They kept the law. They honored God. But inevitably, after a time, they would turn away. The law became too constricting, so people turned away from it, away from God, to do what was pleasing in his own eyes, pursuing their own interests and desires. And so as we read the history of the Old Testament, we see this constant seesaw between obedience and disobedience, between success and failure, between trusting in God and trusting in themselves. And eventually, over time, even the seasons of law-keeping became self-improvement projects. In other words, rather than using the law as a way to honor God and pursue him, they used the law as a new tower of Babel. They used the law as a, as a ladder to climb, a, a pedestal to stand upon and boast, a system with which they could build their own glory, working their way up to heaven. You see, the problem with humanity, the void that every person spends their life trying to fill, is not meaninglessness because we've lost our way. It's not that we just haven't found the right way to live yet. It's not that we don't have enough knowledge, power, or control. It's not that we haven't experienced enough beauty or fun or experiences. No, it's much simpler than that. The problem is that we were created to be with God and because of sin, we're not. And it's not just a geographical problem. It's an internal problem. We were meant to be with God in every sense of the word. And because of sin, not only are we without God, but we are also against God. Adam and Eve didn't just get themselves kicked out of a club that they needed to find their way back into. Something inside them in that moment broke. They'd begun a rebellion against God that has continued until this day. Every one of their posterity, every child who's ever been born, has been born into this rebellion, inheriting the consequence of their fall. And the Bible doesn't describe this consequence as being born in the wrong place, just so that we find our way back to the right place. This is what a lot of self-help teachers teach. A lot of some other religions teach this. But the Bible doesn't say that we've been born in the wrong place. It describes our consequence as being born as enemies of God. This phrase appears numerous times in the New Testament. Meaning that God truly is our greatest and only need for life and life to the fullest, but rather than living our lives running towards him, we live our lives running further and further away from him. Because we are enemies of God, 
Even the best of human efforts at achieving any kind of meaning, significance, or satisfaction will fail because we are hell-bent upon finding it ourselves without God. We need God, but we want nothing to do with God. In other words, according to the Bible, according to the gospel, the outlook for human effort is bleak. It's like that magic eight ball that you shake and you wonder what the answer is. It says, outlook, not good. The outcome of human effort is bleak. The world says that life is something that we can achieve. The problem is that we can't do it. It doesn't work because as enemies of God, we cannot find our way back to God. Now, according to the Apostle Paul, how do we get it? How do we get life? For this, the Apostle Paul points to his own experience. Let me read Galatians 2.19. Paul says this, he says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Let me unpack this for just a little bit. Uh, A chief concern for Paul's whole ministry, right? A chief concern for the Apostle Paul was a right understanding of the law even when he was speaking to Gentiles, even when he was speaking to those who, who were outside the law. Paul's concern was a right understanding of the law. He himself was a Jew and a Pharisee, which meant a, a Pharisee, which meant that he was in a group within the Jews that was known for its strict adherence to and understanding of the law. So intense was his zeal for the law that he was persecuting Christians. Right? He was even overseeing the murders of Christians because in his mind, this radical teaching didn't line up with the law that he had in his life studying and working to uphold. Taylor preached about that a couple of weeks ago. But when Paul was in the midst of these efforts, miraculously, he was knocked off his horse and addressed by Jesus himself with the truth. Jesus' message to Paul was this. He said, Paul, you're trying to adhere to the law. You're working really hard, but rather than helping me, you're hurting me. In your zeal for the law, you've missed the main point of the law, which was to point you to me. All right, at this, after this event, Paul withdrew for three years to work out with the help of the Holy Spirit what this meant. And when Paul reemerged after three years of prayer uh, and study and began his preaching ministry, he came out with guns blazing. And what did he say? He came out, this, this man who knew the law, who knew the law to a T, who had studied it, who had upheld it for his whole life, a Pharisee of Pharisees, he came out and said, we can do it. That was Paul's teaching. Romans The letter where we get Paul's fullest explanation of the gospel begins with a three-chapter-long indictment of all humanity in which Paul says, essentially, he says, no one is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in Romans 3.20, at the very end of this section, Paul says this about the law. He says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. There's a phrase there in Romans that occurs twice in Galatians 2.16, our text for this morning. By works of the law, no human being will be justified. Here's what Paul means. It's what we've been talking about really all morning. We are looking for life, all of us. And in order to find life to its fullest, we need to be back in right relationship with God. But in order to do that, our sin, our offense against God needs to be dealt with. We are enemies of God and we need to be made friends. And that is essentially what justification is. Justification, which can only come from God, is God looking at us and saying, essentially, you are no longer my enemy. You are mine. And saying, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Here's what Paul's saying. Even if you were to keep the law perfectly, the law can never justify you in God's sight. 
by your own efforts, even with the very, very best the world has to offer, the gift that God gave the world in the law, even with the best the world has to offer, we cannot make ourselves acceptable to God, which means we can't achieve wholeness with God. We can't achieve what is truly life to the fullest on our own. We can't do it. Our best attempts to do this are nothing but filthy rags before God, as it says in Isaiah. Even God's glorious law can't get us to God. And that's because that was never God's purpose for the law. This is where the rest of Romans 3.20 comes in. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law was never intended to be a means of justification. The law was meant to show us our sin. In other words, it is a means of condemnation, not justification. It points us back to the fall. And stick with me here. If you remember, what was the final consequence of the fall? God's warning to not eat of the fruit of the tree was what? He said, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. Death. And sure enough, after Adam and Eve eat of it, God pronounces a curse over them. And at the end of the curse, God says this line in Genesis 3.19. He says, you shall return to the ground for out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. The end of the curse is death. The wages of sin is death and the law in drawing out with unmistakable clarity our sin thereby walks us right to our death. Paul, verse 19, Paul says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Paul is saying, the law has performed its purpose for me with Christ's help. It walked me right to my death and I died. And that's why the law can't be the whole story. The law only ever existed to point forward, point forward to the very heart of the gospel. You see, in giving people the law, God knew what he was doing. Rather than giving them them the work that they needed to do to accomplish their own salvation, he was giving them a foretaste of the work that he would have to come and do for them. He was giving them, in giving them the law, the very instrument that would nail his son to the cross. The penalty required for his people's sin was death. But all humanity, if, if all humanity were to suffer the penalty, this penalty, if all humanity were to die, then there would be no hope for redemption. There would be no restored relationship with God. So God's plan was to come and take that penalty, take death itself upon himself for us. And Jesus came and did just that. At just the right time, we're gonna talk about this, Galatians 4, in a few weeks. Uh, in just the right time, Jesus came and lived the perfect life that none of us could so that he could give his life for us as a fit substitutionary sacrifice for us, to take the penalty that we deserve, to take death and take that upon himself. As God himself, completely innocent, Jesus was conspired against, he was condemned and he was crucified. He took on our sin and paid the penalty for all of it. He gave his life so that he could give us life. And on the third day, he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death once and for all, displaying for us that in him truly is fullness of life. And for Paul, this is the fulfillment of the gospel. This is the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. Right? The law was necessary part of God's plan. Far from being a road to, roadmap to achieving life, the law brought out the depths of our sin, bringing each of us to our necessary end, death. But the glorious truth of the gospel is that right, right when we reach this end, right, right when we reach the end, right when we reach the bottom, Christ appears, our savior, to look at us and say, brother, sister, this doesn't have to be the end. Don't run from it. Place your faith in me 
and die to your old self and watch as I give what only I can give, life and life eternal. Paul says in verse 19, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And then in verse 20, he says this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul looks at Jesus and says, see, when Christ was crucified, so was I. The old me died with Christ and the new me, this new life I live is nothing other than the very life of Christ in me. So how do we get life? How do we get life to the fullest? It's the great paradox of the gospel. In order to live, you must first die. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And you must die so that Christ can come alive in you. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying, look, you can't do it on your own. The world, which the Bible describes as this force which, which runs contrary to God, the world wants you to believe the lie that you can do it. But all of this striving, all of this work is slavery and it is pointless. Either all of your striving is pointless or as Paul says in verse 21, Christ's death was pointless. It's one or the other and Paul is clear about which one is true. Either you can try for yourself which will end in death or you can place your trust in Christ which will result in life and life to the fullest. The world tells us that life can be achieved. The gospel says that life must be received. And life, true life, can only ever be received by faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who gave himself for us because he loved us. What a glorious gift. And Paul is abundantly clear here. Uh, This is not some new philosophy. This is not just another system of getting to God. It is death in life. It is everything about you. It requires everything and it gives everything. Many of us struggle with this. Let me put it this way. Uh, When Paul talks about life um, here, he doesn't use the concept of balance. Often we use the concept of balance. And there's nothing inherently wrong with using balance to understand life and how to live life practically. There can be good practical wisdom in being balanced in some senses. But when talking about what life consists of, Paul doesn't say you need to figure out the right balance for you to make sure that you can hold all of these spinning plates in the air. Paul doesn't say you need to let Christ come alive in you so you can make sure you get enough Jesus in you to balance out your life of sin before. That's not how Paul describes it. Paul says you must die. He says you must die to your old man completely. You must die to the law, to your efforts of trying to build yourself up and find meaning in your life. You need to stop trying because Christ's offer to you is not a better you that's more effective at balancing things. Christ's offer is a new you through life in him. The offer of Christ is to be crucified with Christ so that it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. Not only is it the offer of Christ, but it's what Christ demands. Jesus himself said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Following Jesus comes at the cost of your life each and every day. In Matthew 10, verse 39, Jesus says similarly, whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
In other words, Jesus is saying, if you think that you found meaning in life today outside of God, then there is coming a day that you will lose it. Because the best life that we can get for ourselves, while we might want to convince ourselves that we're really living, the best life that we can get for ourselves is but a shadow of the real thing, and it will end in death and loss. But if instead you lose your life for Jesus' sake and place your faith in Christ and let the old man die with Christ on the cross, taking away all of your sins with it, paradoxically, in this loss of life, you will find life as it was meant to be found, the very life of God himself given to you. And this is great news for you. If you're not a Christian, it's great news for you. It's the best news that you'll ever hear in your life. But this is also great news for those of us who are Christians. Jesus, again, Luke 9, 23, emphasized that this isn't a one-time thing, right? He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is something that we must, we get to do. This is something we get to do, something we must do each and every day of our lives. When Paul writes to the Galatians, he's writing to Christians to remind them of the truth. In the passage right before this, we see that the apostle Peter himself needed Paul's reminder. Galatians 2, 11 through 14, Paul explains how the apostle Peter was getting it wrong and how he rebuked the apostle Peter. Peter was walking out of step with the gospel because he was falling back into the law falling back into his old ways rather than living out the freedom and life that he had in Christ. And what we learn from that is this. Once you become a Christian, you do not become impervious to temptation. When Jesus taught us to pray, he taught us this. He said, he said you should pray like this. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Pray that every single day. One of the temptations that we face each day is the temptation from lapsing from trusting in Christ to trusting in, our, to trusting in ourselves, even just a little bit. And we're tempted by it all the time. Our world is shouting to us, you don't need God. We can find life on our own. And sometimes this works its way into the church even. It affects how we look at one another, how we justify ourselves, what we require of others, as Taylor talked about last week. But we can't do it. We must remember that the gospel invites us to lay down our whole lives, not part, Not most, not just enough to balance some scale that we've constructed in our minds, but our whole lives so that we can with bold confidence say with the apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This life I now live in the flesh. I live to God through faith in Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. The danger in getting this wrong is that we will lose the very life that we are striving for. The potential in getting it right is much more than simply finding meaning in your life. It's nothing short of world transformation and the very fulfillment of God's plan through us in the world. This is God's plan. Blood-bought, spirit-filled believers living out the truth of the gospel in freedom and love for one another. Other people become no longer observers to impress, but people to pour out our love on and affection on, to see them loved, uh, loved and cared for by God as he wraps his arms around them through us so that he could draw them into himself. This is God's plan, and why? All because of God's love for us. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you get that? The world tells us that we must achieve our lives. The gospel tells us that we must receive it, and we receive it not from a begrudging God, not from a frustrated God who looks at us and is so annoyed with our failures but from a loving God 
who through no good of our own set his love upon us and said, I want you. Everything that we have ever done in our lives, contrary to him, contrary to one another, despite anything that we could have done to please him or despite anything that we've done to disappoint him or to rebel against him, God looks at us and says, I love you. And that's why I'm giving my life for you. In his love for us, God is wooing us back to him, inviting us to trust in him that we might find ourselves in him and in him find life to the fullest. Brothers and sisters, live to God and watch as Christ alive in you works better things than you or I ever dared to imagine. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Might we never be unmoved or unchanged by this glorious words. Let me pray for us.